turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. We're continuing our series, Walking with Christ. Ephesians chapter 6. And over the last uh, year and a half or so, we have been in two series on Ephesians. And it's nice because the book of Ephesians kind of splits right in half, right? You have first half, chapters 1 through 3, second half, chapters 4 through 6. And if you remember... The first series we were in is called Union with Christ. This is about a year ago or so, and it talked about chapters one through three of Ephesians, and it talked about just that, union with Christ. What does it mean to be united with Christ? Chapter one talks about how God is blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. Um, it, It talks about the fallen state of humanity. Ephesians two, right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. It talks about God's love for us and intervening in our lives. We were dead, now we are alive. We were darkness, now we are light, right? A buddy of mine says, God isn't in the business of making bad people good. God is in the business of making dead people alive. That is Ephesians 2 right there. And when we are in Christ, it actually says in Ephesians 1 3 that we're a new human. We have a new humanity, so when we're united with Christ in the gospel, in love, then in Ephesians 4.1, there's this big word, therefore, and it's like the hinge of the book of Ephesians. And every good Bible reader, as I've said before, and I'll say again, whenever you see the word therefore, you should ask, what is therefore? Therefore, right. And so Paul is saying that because of all of this, because you are united with Christ, you are a new human, therefore, what does your life look like? And that's what we've been in the last couple months or so is walking with Christ. How does the fact that I'm in Christ change the way I talk to people? How does the fact that I'm in Christ change the way I view my resources and my finances? How does it change my relationships? How does it change my thinking, right? It says, therefore, walk worthy in a manner of the calling to which you have been called. There's a bunch of lists here too, right? You know, um, um, don't be in the darkness, but walk as children of light. Don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this. And, and what's important, what's imperative is that even in the structure, Paul has a, a theology, if you will. And it's we cannot do these things apart from Christ. What do we like to do? We like to say, oh, finally, the list of things. Okay, well, I won't do this. I will do this. I, I won't do this. I will do this. And Paul says union with Christ to be a Christian necessarily comes before walking with Christ. And so what we've been looking at the last few weeks is three different types of relationships that Paul addresses. The first one was a couple weeks ago, wives and husbands. That's the first type of relationship that Paul addresses. The second one was a couple weeks ago, Todd talked about um, uh, children and fathers, children and parents. That's the second relationship. Today, we're going to be talking about slaves and masters. If you go into the first century uh, Roman household, you would find typically these three relationships in a house. They actually call this the household code. So you'd find, typically, you'd find wives and husbands, you'd find um, uh, uh, children and parents, and you would find slaves and masters. And before we get into the passage that we're gonna be in today, chapter six, five through nine. What I actually want to do is I want to go back and I wanna start in chapter five, verse 15. Um, there is, a, there is a, a governor, you know how sometimes golf carts have a governor and you can only go a certain speed? It's always the worst. I'm like, come on, I wanna go faster, right? There's a, in, in, in the text, there's often a governor of a command or an imperative, and there's an umbrella, if you will, of which other things fall under. So these three sets of relationships, wives, husbands, children's 
children's children, parents, and slaves and masters, they actually fall under a governor, a larger umbrella. So I want to back up and I want to look at what that is. So let's read chapter five, verse 15. This is after Paul says, you know, imitate God as children, walk in love. How do we love Christ? Love gave himself up. And then he says this in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time because the days are evil. Therefore, don't be foolish, but rather understand what the will of the Lord is. Don't get drunk with wine, that's debauchery, but rather, and here is the imperative, it's gonna be up on the screen as well, you can follow along with this chart, but be filled with the Spirit. That's the imperative. Be filled with the Spirit. There are four ways we are filled with the Spirit. Todd addressed this uh, a couple weeks ago. Verse 19, the first way we're filled with the Spirit is that we are addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The second way we're filled with the Spirit is that we're singing and making melody to the Lord. The third way we're filled with the Spirit, verse 20, is that we're giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus. And the fourth and final way that we are filled with the Spirit, verse 21, is that we are submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What does submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ look like? Great question, glad you asked. Verse 22, wives to your husbands as to the Lord. Skip down to verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Moving on to chapter six, verse one. This is another way that we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Verse four, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And we're in our text for today. Chapter six, Verse five, this is the final example of how we are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It says this, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and with trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not as to man, knowing that whatever good anybody does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether, regardless of whether you're a slave or free. Verse nine, masters do the same to them. Stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Father, we know that your word is alive your word changes life. Your word gives life. Your word is light in the darkness. And I pray right now that we would humbly submit to it. I pray right now that we would listen to it. And I pray, Lord, that it would speak. As the preachers of old used to say, Lord, stand in my body, think in my mind, and speak in my mouth. We pray all of these things in your son's name and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, amen. amen. When I was in high school, I went on a mission trip to... Uh, Jamaica, and one of the things about traveling internationally that this is my first time traveling internationally that I didn't know is that culture is different wherever you go, even nationally if you travel within the same country. There are different cultures, right? And with different cultures come different customs, different expectations, different speech, you know, different definition of what's cool, what's not cool, what's successful, what's not successful, etc. 
And um, uh, what we did as a youth group there is we would run VBSs at these different churches. And one of the uh, churches in the morning, the church was set up in such a way that here was the building. And then there was like this gravel like uh, parking lot or driveway that led up to a main road. And this particular day, our bus that we had to travel on was on the other side of the main road. And so we would get there and we would unload and we would do VBS and we would pack up and we would go on the bus and we would, you know, continue driving. Well, one day in particular, my buddy Elliot and I were late or behind or something. And so the whole youth group had already packed up, walked down the gravel uh, parking lot, which by the way, there were bushes, really tall bushes uh, that blocked the road. So then they crossed the road and then they um, went to the bus and they were waiting for us. And so I left Elliot, I don't remember why, but I was walking out, left the church building, was walking on the gravel driveway up to the main road. And as I was walking, I was looking to my left. Now, one thing about Jamaican culture that I did not realize about American culture is that they drive on the left side of the road, whereas we drive on the right side of the road. Their driver seat is the front right seat of the car, our driver's seat is front left seat of the car. So in my mind, I'm like, well, in America, I look to the left before I cross the street, so I'm gonna keep looking to the left. So I'm walking, 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 looking to the left. There is not a car in sight. This is great, right? It doesn't cross my mind to look to the right first, which is just bad life skills, I don't know. And so I'm just like looking to the left, and right before, as I'm about to step onto the road, I hear, Parker, and I look, and it's our youth group at the bus, by the bus, and they're doing this. And I'm like, oh, they miss me. They're like waving. And so I like start to wave. And as soon as I start to wave, I feel a hand grab my shirt and yank me back. And as soon as that happens, a charter bus going 50 miles an hour zooms right past me. And I started laughing. I don't know why. I think it was just like a physical reaction. I think my mom started crying or something. And in that moment, I realized that the traffic laws in America do not translate to the traffic laws in Jamaica, and it could have been very, very dangerous, right? And I tell you that story because while it's kind of funny and kind of terrifying, it taps into something that you and I do pretty regularly, especially when it comes to reading the Bible. Because what I did in, that, in my naivete is that I imported my own understanding, my own culture, my own understanding of traffic laws, I imported that into a different context and culture in which the traffic laws are not the same. Sometimes when we come to the Bible, we import uh, uh, definitions or meanings or experiences or emotion. We import it onto, we presuppose it onto a text when it ought not be there. And that is especially true of today's text. Wives and husbands, that's pretty normal. It's still a thing today. Children and, and, and parents, pretty normal, still a thing today. But slaves and masters, not only is it not a thing today, but it brings with it a lot of emotion, a lot of embarrassment in a chapter in American history. And, and it, this passage has been used in ways in the past to manipulate to abuse, to lie. And so, so it's hard to, to contextualize ourselves, right? But what we have to do is we don't wanna contextualize the Bible to ourselves. We want to contextualize ourselves to the Bible. We want to try to not bring in any definitions that we might have. 
So with that, I wanna talk about, we have to contextualize ourselves right, geographically, right? The Bible was written on the other side of the world. We live in America. The Bible was written in the Middle East, you know, North Africa, modern day Turkey. But we also have to contextualize ourselves and, and, and think about ourselves uh, chronologically. This was written over 2,000 years ago. And so what I wanna do is I wanna look at the differences between slavery in the Americas and slavery in Rome. Because when we hear the word slaves, we automatically think of the transatlantic slave trade, right? When the Great Britain went down into the western um, coasts of Africa and stole humans to work for them, and eventually the American colonies got involved, and it was horrific, it was awful, and it is not the heart of God, period. It also was different than slavery in the first century Rome. There are some similarities, but there are some differences. And so I actually have a chart up here where we're gonna look at the differences between slavery in the Americas and the differences between slavery in the context in which Paul is writing. The first, most important, biggest difference between slavery that is in the, is in the history of America and slavery in first century Rome is that it was not based on race. It was not based on ethnicity. In the Americas, it was almost exclusively based on race and ethnicity. So what was it based on? In Rome, you could actually, um, sometimes it was based on, on if, if Rome conquered a nation or a state or a village, they could actually make those people their slaves. But also, if you were a poor family and you had a child and you knew that the child was gonna die, you could actually uh, give them to a family and they could be a slave and they could have a, a better hope for survival than if they were um, with you. Another thing, it wasn't as common, but it was different, at least the second, thing, the, the second thing is that you could sell yourself into slavery, and that was known as a bond servant. Say you were in debt, or you had um, a, a situation in which you couldn't pay off something, and you had a family. You could actually go to another family and sell yourself to them until you earned enough money to pay off the debt that you owed. Another difference is that slavery in Rome actually encouraged education. Slaves were uh, uh, hierarchical as well. So if you were like the emperor or a big politician or a really rich dude, you would actually want a slave to do your teaching for you, to do your taxes for you, to do all that. So they actually encouraged reading, they encouraged writing, they encouraged uh, honing in of skills. And the final difference is that there was a higher possibility of freedom in slavery in the first century Rome. It wasn't guaranteed, it was not guaranteed, but there was a higher possibility of freedom than there was in slavery in the Americas. Now, that does not mean that slavery was okay. Slavery is not the heart of God. There are, diff there are similarities, right? If you were born a slave, you, or you were born into slavery. If you were slaves and you had a child, that person was, was also a slave. Tragically, another similarity is that a slave was viewed of as property, not a person. If your master got angry one day or you looked at them wrong, they could just beat you with no consequences. If your master was sexually or romantically attracted to you, they could use you with no consequences. If your master just was really angry and wanted to kill you, they could kill you, no consequences. You weren't counted in the senses, you couldn't vote, you couldn't do anything. You were viewed of as property, which is the next, leads to the next similarity is that there were no legal rights and then often they were used and abused. Slavery, there are some differences, there are some similarities, but slavery 
for all time has never been okay. Slavery is not okay. It is never the heart of God to say one person should own and use to their own advantage another person. So if slavery was not okay then in first century Rome, then why does Paul address it? What's he doing? Some people say, does Paul endorse slavery because he talks about it? Before we see how he answers it, the answer is clearly and abundantly no. Paul, the Bible, the heart of God does not endorse slavery, period. And he gets to that answer in three ways. We're gonna look at two of them today. The third one will be on the Extra Point podcast this Tuesday, but we're gonna look at two ways that Paul gets to the answer, that slavery is not okay. Because what Paul is doing is he actually is subverting slavery. He is undermining slavery. He's doing it subtly, but he's doing it. So the first way he does it is it's kind of implicit, it's kind of subtle, right? And it's in what Paul doesn't say. Think about this. We're in the section of relationships, the household code. We've got wives, husbands, children's, children's, children, parents, and uh, slaves and masters. What does he do with wives, husbands, children, parents? He grounds it in scripture. He grounds it in theology. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the uh, wife, as, as Christ is the head of the church. Husbands, love your wives how? As Christ loved the church, and he gave himself for her, right? That is grounded in the heart of God. God ordained marriage. God created marriage. It is a good thing. He quotes scripture in Genesis. You know, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. Two shall be uh, come one flesh, whatever, whatever it says, something like that, right? That is the, uh, that's the Parker McGoldrick translation. That is, that is a good thing. Paul is saying, look, this institution of marriage is godly. It is theological. It is based on scripture. It is of God. Children and parents, same thing. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. That is a moral judgment. It is, the word is just, right, just, righteous. It is a good thing that children should obey their parents. And in fact, he tags scripture onto it again. Honor your father and mother. By the way, it's the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you in the land. Fathers, don't provoke your children, but bring them up in the discipline of the Lord. It is a good thing. The, 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 the parent to child relationship is of God and it is good. What does Paul not do when he comes to slaves and masters? He does not say, the institution of slavery is good because it is of God and therefore this is why you should obey your masters. He does not say that. He does not ground slavery and mastery in scripture. No scripture reference. And so what Paul is doing is he is subtly saying this, is, this category is not the same as these other categories. He does it subtly. He also does it explicitly. Let's look at the text. It'll be up on the screen here. Slaves, Obey your earthly masters, which is as opposed to heavenly masters, with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, and then look at this phrase, it'll be in bold, as you would Christ. Obey your earthly masters as you would Christ. So really, you are obeying your earthly masters, but who actually are you obeying? You are obeying Christ. Let's keep going. Verse six, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but as, this is also underlined, slaves of Christ. You might have the word servants there. It's the same word as slaves. So you're not owned by a person. 
Think about this. He's addressing slaves in the, in the first century, which is in the first place, which is just unheard of. And now he is saying, you are not slaves of a person. You are actually using that and viewing that because you are slaves of Christ. And what does Romans say? When you're slaves of Christ, you're actually a slave of righteousness. Let's keep going. Uh, but as slaves of Christ, this is the end of verse six, doing the will of your master. No, doing the will of the person who owns you. No, doing the will of God from the heart. Yes, your earthly master has a will, but you actually, because you're a slave of Christ, are doing the will of God from the heart. Verse seven, rendering service with a good will. Again, here it is, as to the Lord, not to man. You are doing your work with a, with a pure heart and with wholeheartedness because you are actually serving the Lord, not man. And then verse eight, knowing that whatever good anybody does, this he will receive back from his earthly master? No, from the Lord. Five times in this passage, five times, Paul subverts and undermines slavery by explaining that the true master is Christ. Paul just leveled the playing field. He said, I know you have an earthly master, but you're actually not accountable to him because you're accountable to another master who's in heaven. I want you to obey your earthly masters, not because you're obeying your earthly masters or because it's some, some uh, uh, power trip for them, but because you're actually obeying Christ. I want you to do the will of your earthly masters because it's the will of your heavenly master. I want you to be obedient slave to your earthly master because in reality, you're not their slave, you're Christ's slave. I want you to work and serve in a way with a pure heart, with good integrity, with good will, not because you're accountable and will be rewarded by them, but because you are accountable and will be rewarded by the Lord. I want you to remember that your status is irrelevant in the kingdom of God. And remember the governor we talked about? What's the verse? Be filled with the spirit by submitting to one another, not because you, you have to or some more obligation, because we, are, because we are doing it out of fear and reverence for Christ. By the way, the word master is the same word as Lord. And it's, it's kind of cool to see Paul using those words interchangeably. So a little homework, if you want to go later this week, read this again and only use the word Lord, and then read it later and only use the word master, which is who he addresses next. Masters, verse nine, it'll be on the screen, do the same to them. Pause right there. Do the same to them. Masters, treat your slaves with respect, with love. Masters, be filled with the Spirit by submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is social suicide for a first century slave owner. You do not address your slaves. You do not give good grace to your slaves. It shows weakness on your part. The word mercy and compassion were bad words in the first century Rome because if you had mercy and you had compassion, you actually were weak and you'd get walked all over. Think of Rome, right? They're just powerhouse over everybody. So this is social suicide for a master to think, now I have to actually treat my slave with respect and dignity. Masters do the same to them. How? Stop your threatening. Knowing that he who is both their master or Lord and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Masters, you actually have a master. 
You are not a master. You're not the pinnacle of your own kingdom. In the kingdom of God, you have a master, and his name is Jesus Christ. And by the way, there's no partiality with him. What is Paul doing? Paul is saying that at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. There is no partiality with God. And if Paul is saying, and if you are in God through Christ, then guess what? There is no partiality with you. And this is where the gold is because there's not a, like a one-to-one um, relationship between slaves, masters, and, and anything today. But this is where the gold is because this is the truth, right? Partiality has no place in the kingdom of God. Think about this. If somebody were to walk in to a room that you're in and they're powerful, they're influential, and you pick up your act and you work harder and you hold yourself differently because of that, or you only do good work when your boss is like looking over your shoulder and then once you're away from them, you just slack off, or you do everything that you're supposed to do, but you do it with grumbling and complaining, or you do everything as, as thinking about what other people are going to think of you, and if I do this, then this person will like me, and if I do this, then I'll get rewarded here, and if I do this, then this person will give me the attention that I want and I think I deserve, or let's flip it. Maybe you have some power, some influence, and yet you are somebody who, 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 who lords your status over somebody to make them do your bidding, or you take advantage of the wealth and the power that you have, or you get frustrated and fly off the handle when somebody who is lower than you doesn't meet your exact need. Paul would be saying that you are not living in and for the kingdom of God. You are not living as being filled with the spirit, submitting to one another in Christ. You are not living by, by imitating God, Ephesians 5.1, and loving as Christ loved. How did Christ love? He gave himself up. You are not being filled with the Spirit. And you should remember that the true master, the true Lord, the one true God, there is no partiality with God. And if, if there's no partiality with God, and we are in God through Christ, then there ought be no partiality in us. The kingdom of God is filled with people, right, who are filled with the fullness of God. The people of God are constantly giving of themselves in love. Think about if, if, if what Paul said was done in the first century Rome, think about the household community, the church, right? Where the patriarch of the family, the, 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 the man who is also the husband, the um, um, father and the slave who is typically tries to rise to power by, by domineering. Think about if he walked into a room, a Christian community, and all of a sudden he's interacting with slaves as a brother. He's loving children, not, not lording his, his status over them. He's selflessly giving of himself to his wife. That's insane. Imagine what kind of people that is. Imagine complete and utter selflessness from everybody. Now bring it back here. Imagine in your communities, complete and utter selflessness. Imagine a place where integrity in work, in conduct, in relationships abounded. Imagine a place where obedience was constantly present. Imagine a place where everybody used their gifts, their talents, their abilities, not for the good of themselves, but rather for the good of others. Imagine a place where everybody actually imitated God in Christ. And Paul would say, imagine that. 
You are that. That is what a Christian is. That is what the church is. The church is the body of Christ. The church is you and I right here in this room are made up of people who are constantly submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, being filled with the spirit of God who doesn't make bad people good. He makes dead people alive. This is who we are. And so if we, if we bring with us partiality, favoritism, if we think to ourselves, well, there are first-tier Christians, there are second-tier Christians, there are third-tier Christians, or there are first-tier people, there are second-tier people, there are third-tier people, we are spitting in the face of what it means to be made in the image of God. And Paul is saying that that has nothing to do in the kingdom. That is not allowed in the church because that isn't the church. Now the question is, can you be described as that? Can I be described as that? Can you be described as somebody who doesn't show partiality, doesn't show favoritism? Can I be described as that? Can you be described as somebody who lives in such a way that doesn't treat others as more important than, than other people, or rather treats yourself as more important than other people? Can you be described as somebody who submits to each other out of reverence for Christ? Ultimately, can you be described as somebody who is filled with the spirit of the living God? Maybe this is convicting, maybe this is overwhelming, maybe this is like, oh, this is just more things for me to do. And if that's the case, I, 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 I implore you, this is impossible without Christ. This is not a society, this is not a manner of living, this is not a way to live apart from Christ. You will burn yourself out in a second. But what does Paul say? That when you are filled with the Spirit, of the living God, this is possible. So maybe the spirit right now is bringing somebody to your mind or a relationship to your mind or a situation to your mind where maybe you've shown favoritism. You have not put the needs of others above the needs of yourself. There is forgiveness. There is life. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.